the German Innovators in China podcast. We empower you to stay tuned with Chinese innovation. Yeah, welcome to a new episode of Jin, the German Innovators in China podcast. Today, I welcome Felix Wendland. Felix is a German founder who founded his own startup in China directly and has lots of great experience and advice to share on how to localize business in China in 2023. Good to have you on the show, Felix. Thank you for having me, Betty. Before we dive straight in, could you please introduce yourself and your business, Branda Urstoff, to our audience and explain why you came to China in the first place? Yes, my name is Felix Wendland. I'm the co-founder and general manager of Brando Rostov in China. Co-founder means I have a business partner and the two of us, we did found the company in 2016. Um, Brando Rostov is a German beer brand that has been around uh, since 1688, but it's not a family business. We uh, acquired the brand in 2014. And ever since we were thinking like what we can do with the brand in the long run, but in parallel, we had different businesses. For example, we were engaged in a global online lottery concept. And this was also my, let's say, first touch point with China in the business environment. I did some travels before to, to China, but this was more for holidays. But really for business, we came to China for this um, global online lottery concept. And during that time, we noticed that in China, German beer has a very high reputation. So Chinese consumers, they really think very highly about German beer. And at the end of the day, we started then con to connect the dots. Like we have this German brand, Brenda Wuschdott. We were the owner of the trademark and the recipes. And we know that in China, German beer is quite famous. Like a lot of people like German beer. They have a certain um, heritage also um, in their own factories. Like Qingdao is uh, founded by German people. So there's a very strong connection in the beer industry with, with Germany. And this was the reason when we said, okay, we have to connect these dots that we have the brand and we know about the Chinese market. And this is how we, we started actually the business. And you didn't expand to China. You founded your business in China from the very start, right? You speak Chinese fluently and not only with the Chinese side of your family, but also with your Chinese employees. Plus, you decided to build an almost pure Chinese team. In your opinion, do language and team setup make a difference when doing business in China? And to what extent would you say? Well, for, first of all, I, I still wouldn't consider me being like super fluent in Chinese. I think I understand a lot, but my my speaking could still be improved. I think this is something a lot of foreigners uh, would probably agree on, that it's very difficult to really um, like master the language. I think the understanding works quite easily, or you also need to put effort, but it's easier to, to start understanding um, your peers um, rather than really... Um, like developing proper speaking skills. But what we realized in coming back to your question, for us, it's really an essential topic that we took the decision, I think it was in 2018, that we only hire local people, means um, native Chinese speakers and ideally Chinese nationals. And by 2018, making this decision, that meant for us that only me, my business partner and our brewmaster are German and the rest of the team shall solely be Chinese. For instance, that we say, We are selling our product to Chinese people, so we want to promote the products in the best way for Chinese people. So we, we believe that works best if you have like a Chinese marketing team and you cooperate with um, Chinese marketing agencies. So this was there, there are many reasons why we said, okay, we want to really become a Chinese company and only 
rely on the, let's say, the, the core values of a German company. But in overall, nowadays, everyone in our team we would say that we are a Chinese company. So tell me more about the drinking habits, the different drinking habits across China. How are they different? And what kind of local cultural differences do you find? Maybe I need to start a little bit differently to answer this question. So when, when we came to China, our mission was somehow to refresh this old-fashioned image of German beer in China. So if you check the Chinese market and have a look into um, the beer industry, and especially to German beers, a lot of brands, very also very successful brands in Germany are active in China, like Paulana and so on. They have a very old-fashioned brand image. They advertise and promote their products with the Oktoberfest, uh, with people in leather pants. So it, this is something that really worked well for Chinese people, I would say 10, 15 years ago. But the younger generation, they want to have something that is more, more fresh, more hip, and also somehow localized. So when we started, we thought that we are cool and that we have a good product and being like German, but locally produced. So we, we have somehow the, the brand promise and the product promise that we are fresh, but in the communication of our brand, we were still somehow old fashioned. So we changed our entire product lineup and now we are producing something that is very popular in Germany, like Radler. Um, it's a drink which is based on beer mixed with lemonade. We have eight different flavors, also Chinese fruits like Yang Mei and, and lychee. And ever since we introduced these products, the business totally changed. So nowadays they make 90% of our revenue. And this brings me back to the different habits that people have in China. Our main distribution network is in the north. And our fruit beers, like we call them fruit beers, these, uh, these Radlers, um, they are very successful in the north, but they are not so successful in the south. And for a long period of time, we thought, okay, it's just because we don't have the right distribution network in the south. We don't have the right clients. But my sales team, they came back to me a couple of months ago and they said in the south, it is not very common to drink those sweet drinks. Like for sure, there are people that are also drinking those kind of drinks, which are a little bit sweet, sweeter, have a lower alcohol level. But it seems like that in the South, the people just prefer, for example, like wheat beer and lager beers. But it seems that there are a lot of people that also prefer sweeter tastes and sweeter taste profiles in general. So you developed special beers in the end for the South. At the moment, we are focused only on the North. Like we, we still try to, to get somehow our footprint also in the South. But we said in the, in the last few months that our strategy must be that we have to become stronger where we are strong already. So that means we are still interested to expand into the South. But first, we want to really have a solid distribution in the North. And uh, meanwhile, we are going to check what kind of fruits or what kind of beers would probably fit better to the southern market. How about the customer segments? I think we spoke before, you mentioned three customer segments that you're tackling. Could you also tell us a bit more about the customer segments? What kind of learnings you had? Maybe a few anecdotes that you can tell about what you experienced when tackling all these customer segments. So in general, we have two product lines. We have the craft beers, so typical German-style lager, wheat beer. We also have an IPA, which we call BPA. Um, and we have the beer pops, like the Rattler products. And the target audience for these two products are totally different. So for the craft beer, we have a lot of, we, we would say we would rather have male consumers between 30 and 35 years. I would say this is the bullseye of the target group. And for the beer pops, it's more female consumers, which are between 25 and 30. So that means we also, we already have two different product categories, 
two different target audiences, which we have to attract in different channels. The male consumers, we mainly reach via bars and restaurants, especially craft beer bars. And the female clients, we get literally in all the channels. Luckily, also in the craft beer bars, because when they go with their boyfriend or husband into a craft beer pub, then they rather choose our product than a very heavy IPA or regular beer. They go usually shopping in supermarkets, much more than men in China. So we also have in supermarkets and convenience stores a more targeted promotion to female clients. And then online, like if we talked about Tmall, JD, we mainly advertise our beer pops on, on, this, on these channels, on the e-commerce channels. And then this is the B2C segment, but we also have B2B clients. So if you look into the B2B segments, we have wholesalers that we are talking to and we're doing uh, direct sales to bars and restaurants. And therefore, we also need to diversify what kind of product suits which kind of channel. You mentioned um, supermarkets, bars and restaurants, nightlife, like channels that you are distributing your different beers on. How were these channels influenced by the pandemic? We all know that China was heavily like hit by the pandemic. There was a, a zero COVID policy. Many brands suffered during this time, but I think you found your own strategy during this time, how to survive and which um, channels to focus on. COVID-19 was for sure a very difficult time for our company. First, I have to say 2020 and 2021 were actually not too bad for us. 2020 was somehow bumpy. We had challenges because we were just starting in um, yeah, beginning of 2019, mid of 2019 to pivot the company towards the, the beer pops. So 2020 was challenging for us. But in China, especially in Shanghai, there were not too many restrictions to that time. Not like we had, for example, in Germany. 2020. And 2021 was until now our strongest year revenue-wise. So also in 2021, there were not so many restrictions, especially not in China, like the lockdowns and so on. They happened end of 2021 and during the time of 2022. And in 2022, coming back to your questions, this was really the time where we realized a lot of our sales channels, especially bars, restaurants, KTVs, they were not allowed to open and some of them even had to shut down entirely. So we lost a lot of clients during that time and also after the Chinese government opened up. So we had to shift our focus more to supermarkets and convenience stores because the people still needed to buy food and drinks. So these were one of the only channels which were actually open most of the time. There were some restrictions when it came to selling alcohol. And so this was also somehow a challenge for us. But at the end of the day, during the, the entire year 2022, we, had, we shifted our distribution towards supermarkets and convenience stores. And nowadays, it's still the major sales channels that we have. And luckily, we introduced the beer pops in 2019 because with this product, it was much easier for us to get into the supermarkets and convenience stores because the competition in the craft beer in the shelf of craft beers is much higher than, than what we are facing um, when we talk about like those food beer-based products. When you say competition, do you mean Chinese competition or international competition? Uh, for the craft beer, it's both. For the craft beer, it's for sure international competition, especially from the US and Europe. And those brands are well established. We also compete with big brands like AB InBev. They have a lot of sub brands like Whole Garden, who also has nowadays a fruit beer category. So with our craft beers, we really have a very, we face a very, very fierce competition. With our fruit beers, it's twofold. There are two kinds of product categories that we are competing with. One are 
fruit beers in general, like everything that is beer-based and uh, let's call it root-infused. And then on the other hand side are those uh, ready-to-drink cocktails, which are actually not beer-based. Um, maybe they use some gin or, or whiskey and blend in some juices. But in the perception of the consumer, they cannot really distinguish what, what kind of base is in there. And the consumer also doesn't care. The consumer cares whether it, uh, it has a good taste preference, if the design of the bottle or the can is attractive, and if the alcohol level is acceptable for them. Interesting. So you're competing more with international brands here, probably, than you would be competing with international brands if you had started your business in Germany, for example. I also understand from what you are saying that you are more forced to being a bit more innovative and not relying too much about on um, traditional recipes and a traditional approaches as we know them from Germany. Now let's talk about a bit about this sales strategy again. You said that you collaborate with local resellers to tackle the different local markets in China. What did you learn from working with these resellers and what kind of anecdotes do you have? What happened along the road, along building these sales uh, channels? And how does that, that collaboration work into both directions? I, I think first approach uh, local resellers with the first idea of how you would sell and position the product. And then they talk to people and come back with their learnings. And probably this also influences your strategy and helps you uh, pro with making progress. So what would you say? We basically started in, in Shanghai by direct sales. So we, at the beginning, only went from bar to bar, from restaurant to restaurant, pitched our product, and left some samples, gave them the product brochure, explained our unique selling proposition. And we quite quickly realized that actually this is not the right approach. So we, we then tried to go to wholesalers and distributors in Shanghai. And um, yeah, to, to make this part of the story it was sh somehow shorter, we then refocused totally our strategy to go outside Shanghai. We said the Shanghai market is interesting, but too competitive. And ever since we took this decision, the biggest challenge on the way was how to get the resources of wholesalers, how to meet wholesalers. So we attended a lot of exhibitions. And this is literally what you just said. We met the people on the exhibition. They tried our product. We explained the brand behind it, the price strategy, how they should advertise the products in their channels. Chinese wholesalers are very transparent about their business. So they not necessarily share the names of your clients with you, but they tell you in what kind of channels they're active. So you know whether you talk to a wholesaler that is focused on on-trade, so bars and restaurants, or off-trade like um, e-commerce and, and supermarkets. And then you know what, what kind of story you need to tell them. And then our strategy is literally to check where is this wholesaler located? What kind of size does he have? Is he also somehow engaged in the wholesale market? That means is he selling to other wholesalers or is he selling directly to bars, restaurants and uh, supermarket channels, which also needs a different strategy. But first, it's important to know the location. And then we usually hire a local salesperson, someone from the region um, who understands the region, who understands the market, who even speaks the local dialect, if there is any. Um, that also makes it easier for us to communicate with our clients um, at the end of the day. And then we build the brand and the distribution network together with the wholesaler. That means our sales manager that we have for, let's say in Harbin, we have a sales manager who is in charge of several wholesalers. And he is coaching and training the sales team of the wholesaler to sell our products so that we can uh, more focus on the important point of sales, like bigger KTVs, um, restaurant change and purchasing departments of supermarkets. These are still clients where we send our own sales manager together with the wholesaler. But for, let's say, the smaller clients, smaller restaurants, bars, 
which are maybe not part of a chain. Um, we just sent the sales team of the um, distributor or wholesaler there directly. And just to explain it to our German audience that has never been to China, KTV is karaoke bars, which are very important here in China. <laughs> So I think when we met in the coffee shop for our pre-chat before the recording, you also mentioned one story that selling, especially to restaurants, can be quite different in China because a lot of restaurants in China develop from very simple setups into like bigger restaurant chains. You also mentioned that there was um, this one restaurant, if I recall it correctly, Uh, were somebody who had been selling food and uh, beverages from a tricycle on the street had developed step by step into um, a small restaurant and a bigger into a bigger chain and that these people working um, like managing and running these restaurants and restaurant chains sometimes have like a very different mindset what did you come across there and like correct me if i explain the story i think it was about wholesalers Like the restaurant that started as a tricycle, that, that's really true. Like it was a, um, a lady that was selling noodles and she, I wouldn't call it a noodle empire, but she has a lot of shops nowadays. But I think main sharing was about the wholesaler. So in China, if you talk to wholesalers, usually you talk to a Chinese owner, you talk to someone who's probably not really comfortable to interact with foreigners. So for, for me, this was always the, the interesting part of, of this journey is always that you go to these two and tier three cities. And my team told me, okay, this is one of the major wholesalers for a certain brand in the region who sells thousands of beer cases per month. And then you meet a guy, let's say in a Western world, not properly dressed, where you think, okay, this is not the right dress code for a business meeting, sitting in his warehouse on some beer cases uh, with a calculator, so not even with Excel, and is writing on paper, either his sales strategy or um, what kind of revenue he made um, during the day. So you really meet people that are probably quite wealthy, but um, they live a very basic life and they also manage their team in that way. And this is something I personally had to learn that you can run a company with uh, 50, 60 people and you, you don't even have any yeah, CRM or anything else that we are using internally in place, but you're still successful. And that taught me a lot in terms of how to do negotiations with them and that it's maybe sometimes better to have a, sales, a Chinese sales director or a Chinese sales uh, person who understands the culture And who can talk with this person on a different level than like the Lao Wai who's coming to the tier two city, who probably doesn't really understand the local dialect, who doesn't speak Chinese properly. They will never understand each other. So this is the, the biggest learning I had that it's so crucial for our business. If you talk to this kind of clients that you need to have a local team and um, I rather focus on bigger key accounts, but I also don't do it myself. I still go with our sales director at the end of the day to, to these clients and have the negotiation. And you hired the Chinese sales director from the very start, as I understood. We quite quickly hired a sales director. Um, but at the end of the day, the one that we hired first is not with us anymore. So for, for two years now, we have uh, someone who came from a big company, but he brought us on a different level already in terms of um, how to structure the sales team, how to code the sales team, how to talk to wholesalers, especially the big ones. You also encountered some bigger challenges along the road, right? Which were the hurdles you had to take and what were your biggest learnings? I think that the biggest challenge that we had at the very beginning was convincing our clients that we are a locally produced product. That we, with our craft beers, with our lager especially, we had a very German, somewhat old-fashioned, but still modernized brand image. 
And we always advertise, okay, this is a beer brewed in accordance to the German purity law, so of high quality. It's produced locally, so we are much fresher than the imported products. But we had a Chinese barcode, and it said, like, made in China. So everyone asks us, guys, why, why are you trying to sell us a local product at a higher price than an imported product? And we explained everything about how expensive it is actually to locally produce and to get the raw materials into the country. But they didn't really buy it, so that they were not really convinced of the story. And this was also one of the reasons when we started, okay, we need to change something totally if we want to become successful in China. So first, the biggest challenge was we are locally produced and we are trying to sell our product with a premium, which is higher than the imported products. So this was something the clients the next didn't like to do or didn't accept. And um, another challenge for sure was then how to localize the brand itself, but also the company and our company culture to the Chinese market. So the branding I already mentioned, we, we started to introduce these Rattler products, the beer pops, which is a super big success for, for us nowadays. Um, but how to do it culturally with the company and with the team. And yes, the decision only to hire national Chinese was probably something that played in very well because then you have at least people with the same cultural background. But they also work for us because we're an international company. So most of our colleagues, they don't necessarily want to work in a Chinese company with a Chinese boss. There's a reason why they want to work for a international company. It's not because we probably pay higher average salary than, than a local company, but it's also the way how we lead the team how we coach the team and what we expect from the people. I think we are a little bit more loose when it comes to working hours, like the people are more flexible. But And we, we lift up certain values that probably a Chinese company doesn't have. In China, it's very, very difficult to, to dismiss or fire people. It's not difficult per se, it's just very expensive. So even during the probation period, um, it's very hard to fire someone. If you hire someone, as a, I make an example, as a social media, mar social media marketing manager, and the person is not performing as you expected him or her to perform, then you really need to have like a proper assessment in place that you can prove at the end of the day that this person really doesn't fulfill the expectations. So it's for a startup at the beginning, we didn't have those um, assessment policies, the routines, everything needs to be written down. Everyone has to sign it. Everyone needs to at least acknowledge that this is in place. And then later on, you can use it to um, end the probation period with someone by like not continuing into the, uh, into the proper labor relationship. So there are a lot of hurdles in, in the Chinese labor law, which makes it quite difficult for companies to, to fire people. And um, especially for a startup, if you're not 100% sure if this person is a cultural fit and a fit for the position, this can be very, really difficult. So we were very, very slow in the recruitment process at the beginning. Now we have, I would say, a very stable core team. Like everyone who's in our headquarter in Shanghai is at least with us for for three years. Like we have some people that are even with us for six years. This is, I would say it's pretty good for China, but we are still struggling with our sales team. So um, building a good sales force, especially because it's uh, remotely managed, they're all outside Shanghai and we only have daily and weekly calls with them. And uh, yeah, I would say quite a holistic approach how to document our processes and the, the client visits. It's very hard to find the right people and to have at the end of the day, the right people in the right seats. 
So that means that, that would it also mean that um, you have to, um, when hiring new staff, you have to have a good job description in place, which then translates into uh, monthly annual uh, appraisals where everybody checks if all the different criteria as defined in the job description and the underlying um, targets and KPIs are met? Or how do you actually track the performance? Can you give an example? Or how frequently do you review the performance of people without demotivating them? I did participate in the Entrepreneurs Accelerator program. So um, you learn a lot of content in terms of um, how to structure your company, how to uh, find the right people, how to assess their performance and so on. And ever since I'm I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization, I, I'm also implementing the tools that they are teaching us. So we do something nowadays for a couple of months that is comparable to OKRs. And we do that on a 30 and 90 day basis and a 365 days basis. So at the end, beginning of the year, we set, we set certain objectives for every single department. Then we cascade it down to the employees within the department. And then we cascade it down to 90 day goals and 30 day goals. And then we have like a seven day to do list for, for the upcoming priorities and so on. And this is actually a quite good way. At the end of the month or at the end of the quarter, it depends on the position, to check how did this person perform. And would you say that these appraisals and checks are more important in China than in, in other markets? Or do you even have to run them differently? I think it, it needs more guidance and more it needs more coaching for Chinese employees, I would say. And I think this has probably also something to do with, with the educational environment in China. But I always have the feeling that you need to explain everything really in detail, what you really want. And you should also check from time to time where they are right now within this work, like in, within this task, if they meet some, some challenges or difficulties. And because sometimes I have the feeling even they meet a challenge, they rather stop continuing instead of asking me um, how to help, like how to overcome this uh, challenge. And what what helps us to break this behavior is that we have like this weekly meeting and one of the questions that we asked you in the weekly meeting is like okay is there anything in the way to to fulfill your task and um, who of who of us can help you to overcome this difficulty good advice and how has this been for you as a boss and leader in your leadership role your requirement of guiding people more closely is that a challenge for you? Would you say that's something that you had to learn or how do you perceive this? Yeah, at the beginning, I thought, especially when, when we started the company, that it's always very good to have this hands-on mentality and do a lot of things um, or have like a very close contact to the person that's executing a certain task and see how they are doing it. And But literally do a lot of things by yourself. This was my attitude at the beginning and I changed that over the last two years that it's super important to, to focus more on the people and help them to do the job properly rather than doing uh, things by myself. This was, I think, the biggest um, change that I had to make because I, I still like to do certain things myself. There are certain tasks that really, like if, if we go to clients, uh, to bars and restaurants, like even to small clients, sometimes I just like to do it because I want to see what's going on in the market. But I also need to remember myself all the time and remind myself not to do it because it's not waste of time. Sales is never waste of time, but maybe it's better to coach someone to do it the same way I do it or maybe even in a better way, maybe someone has better. So I try to work more on the business rather than in the business. I think this is the most important thing um, also in China. Also, when, when you are in a, in a very early stage of your company, because you need to get the people anyway, sooner or later on track. 
that you need to get traction with your company and therefore you need everyone aligned. And it shouldn't be a problem if I'm not in a company for, for a week. This is always my goal that I say, okay, even if there's something going on, I have to go back to Germany uh, to talk to business partners, investors, like the company should not suffer just because I'm not here. And I think nowadays we reach the status, but I still believe there's still room to improve that I really work only on the business and not in the business anymore. I think like for every founder and every uh, leader, I think it's, it's probably something that you can apply to any leadership position. But um, yeah, very, very good examples here. Um, you also mentioned before that you had a um, Western or even German um, investor base. So your investors, and correct me if I'm wrong, are mainly based in Germany or in Europe. I can imagine that during the pandemic and um, during times while sales were a bit more challenging here in China, with your focus on the Chinese market, that you had to answer a lot of questions. And how did the, um, the strong focus on China and the setup with the German or European investor base like influence the way you act and what kind of challenge was that for you? How do you learn from it or how did you even um, readjust certain strategies in your business? It's true. We, all, all our investors are based in Germany. They're all German, mostly individuals. And especially during the pandemic, we had the challenge to explain the situation to them because What are their resources of information? For sure, it's the, the monthly report or the monthly call or sometimes only quarterly call that we have with them to explain the situation of our company, how we develop, how the sales is doing, what the market environment is doing, how COVID is going to be handled in, in China. And on the other hand side, the other resources for them is mainly like media outlets. They, they read newspapers, um, they check websites, they, they watch TV news. and Especially during that time, I think in Germany, there was, um, especially in Germany, there were a lot of newspaper articles, which probably were not in favor for investors to say, okay, you should now invest into China, especially knowing that a lot of lockdowns um, are happening over here. And a lot of bars and restaurants, they really suffered. So for, for a sales channel that is essential for us, like there was actually not so much hope. And we were very lucky that our investors, they, they have faith in our brand in our company in the team that we overcome the situation and they backed us like they gave, they gave us more equity to, to balance our cash flow. And they helped us to invest in certain marketing and promotional activities, even during COVID. So they didn't stop investing. And I think and we were quite lucky because I know that a lot of friends of mine who also have had their own company in China, they, they failed because either um, their business entirely was like um, disrupted by, by certain external effects but it just didn't get money from the investors anymore. So I think it, well, what I really learned is that it's super important to be very honest and like really brutal honest to your investors about the situation. Don't try to, to draw a too nice picture because um, especially in an uncertainty like the COVID-19 and the policies that were in place in China, if you draw a too nice picture and at the end of the day, nothing works out, they're going to lose faith in you. So, and I think this was... Um, one of the reasons why our investors, they had faith in us, they believed in us because they knew that we don't um, like try to make everything nicer. It is actually is like we really told them where are the difficulties. Um, and we also always had strategies in mind, which we discussed with them how to improve the situation. So um, they somehow saw that we are working hard um, to bring the company back on track. Yeah, but this is still an ongoing process because the consumer confidence in, in China is still not there where everyone wants it to be. Like 
we, we had a great start into the year, January, February, and March, but April and May, and also now June, they don't look as um, positive as everyone expected at the end of last year. So this is still an ongoing process that we have with our investors who are all in Germany and not here on the ground. My business partner hasn't been to China for three years. So they somehow also have to rely on me and on what I'm going to report to them and on our team that we really put everything we have into uh, into this um, company to make it successful. And so is expansion to other Asian markets a potential strategy for you to, say, become more independent of developments in China? Or is that something that you wouldn't be focusing on right now because there's still so much to learn in China? What's your approach on that? During the pandemic, especially last year, we were looking deeper into that to export our products, for example, to Thailand, Vietnam, and other Southeast Asian markets. We also somehow started to contact wholesalers there. But the strategy is a little bit different nowadays. We we are open to it, but we don't want to build the brand there in the first place. So our ideal scenario would be that we that we find a, let's say, a general importer who trusts the brand, who thinks that this is a good uh, fit for his market, and then we start with like smaller charges of, of beer, like let's say a few pallets so that they can test the market. This is for sure something um, that we're looking into to um, yeah, get also to diversify our sales network because we are only focused on mainland China. We're not even focused on um, Hong Kong, Taiwan or, um, or Macau. So we are only focused on mainland China. And this could be an option for us to expand, but this is something that I take more care of because for me, this is working on the business, like how to create a future where we can have different revenue streams. They are super interesting countries for our brand, especially in, in Thailand and Vietnam, which are booming markets, especially Vietnam. But we need to find the right partner first. And my, my team in China is not focused on that. I get some help from our logistic manager. She's helping me to, to find out what kind of uh, regulations we are going to meet in these countries. But our sales team is only focused on mainland China. And this, this shall also remain like that. We don't want that they uh, lose focus We need to be like laser focused on the Chinese North at the moment. And on parallel, I try to find some wholesalers and general importers, which might be interesting to start our product in, in their own region. And with Vietnam, there's a common border. So if we have a wholesaler, for example, in Yunnan, which is very close to, um, to the north of Vietnam, it's also relatively easy to send samples there to get a market feedback and even support maybe the wholesaler in the communication about the brand. Okay, Felix, thank you very much. Um, and to wrap this up, what kind of advice would you give to any founder interested in the Chinese market, either in building their business here from the very start or coming here, like expanding to China? What kind of advice do you have for them? What should they be focused on and what kind of mistakes should they not make and um, which associations should they be working closely with uh, which like kind of accelerator programs um, are there that you can recommend major recommendation or advice from my side because of based on my own experiences to think about how to localize the product or the service that they're offering rather than we had like have this very narrow mindset to say okay this is a german beer locally produced but we don't change anything Like this was for us the, the major game changer to say, okay, we need to change the product and the story behind the, the product category that we introduced to be successful in China. So don't be stubborn just because you think your product is already at the level 
that it can easily be sold. I think in China, everything needs to be somehow localized. It works just differently because it's a totally different culture for, for us Westerners. And in terms of organizations, I like to work with the people from the German chamber because naturally I'm German, so it's, it's quite easy to contact people there. I really enjoyed the journey that I had with the Entrepreneurs Organization Accelerator Program. I just graduated to the, let's say, to the umbrella organization, to EO, to the um, Entrepreneurs Organization itself. But the Accelerator Program of EO is really valuable. Like you really learn more about yourself, how to structure your company in a good way. You learn from peers based on their experiences. Um, usually they are from different industry. So this was for me personally a, a major change to also somehow get out of my own comfort zone and, and also have to admit that there are for sure a lot of failures and mistakes that we did on our way, but that other people also having the same difficulties in the market. Because as an entrepreneur, you are mostly always by yourself. You don't have literally a boss. Sure, you have investors which keep you accountable, but you don't have a boss that, that is pushing you to the limit. Like You have to push yourself to the limit. And I think it's very good if you're in an organization like the accelerator program where you have like-minded people that all have the same goal to make their company successful and that are eager to learn from each other perfect thank you very much for this valuable advice for sharing your experiences your learnings your uh, challenges everything that you came across along the journey today i think it would be great to have you on the show again maybe in a, in a year's time or so to see what what has happened one year more down the road and it was a pleasure talking to you and having you on the show felix and have a great day see you and talk to you again next time Thank you, Betty. It was a pleasure to join and to talk to you, and thanks for having me. And here's my summary. One, do not enter China with ready-made strategies, but localize your product and services straight away. Two, avoid hiring too many foreigners. Hire Chinese staff, even for C-level and management positions. You will learn more quickly and localize more quickly. Three, Work with wholesalers. They can be your access to bigger distribution networks and more local expertise. They know the Chinese submarkets, they speak the local dialects, and they have their own established customer base. Four, as for your investors, be brutally honest to them and don't draw a too nice picture. Mutual trust is key, especially during times of struggle. If you have a European investor base, this is even more important. I, for my part, learned a lot from Felix's experiences and I hope so did you. Thank you very much for listening and tune in again next time. The whole Gin team are looking forward to welcoming you back. Mm -hmm.